Misa proposed that the Senate give immediately emergency powers to the Supreme Chancellor. It is with great reluctance that I have agreed to this calling. I love democracy. I love the Republic. The power you give me, I will lay down when this crisis has abated. The time was 3.30 a.m. The House of Representatives adopts the Senate's final version of the Bayanihan Act, which gives a wide array of emergency powers to the President. Senate Bill 1418 is now to be presented to the President for signing. Welcome to Debatable. In this episode, we're going to discuss Senate Bill 1418. Just a disclaimer for this episode, I am not a lawyer. This is my opinion and the personal reading of the bill. Nothing I say here should be understood as definitive or authoritative. You should not be treating this as legal advice because that's illegal for me to do. Also, another disclaimer, I am not also a lawyer. I am a mere Paulside graduate and I agree with Kyle. There's also so much unfolding regarding this issue, so make sure you read up from other sources. Also. Kyle is the one who objectively understands this issue more, given he knows all the legal jargon. So I'll just be chiming in once in a while to ask questions and probably give my opinions on political matters. All right. So we have this bill that confers emergency powers to the president. And the basis of that is the Constitution. The Constitution actually allows the Congress to do this in Article 6, Section 23, Paragraph 2. Which reads, and I'm going to read this verbatim, In times of war or other national emergency, the Congress may, by law, authorize the President for a limited period and subject to restrictions as it may prescribe, to exercise powers necessary and proper to carry out the declared national policy. And unless sooner withdrawn by resolution of the Congress, such powers shall cease upon the next adjournment thereof. So that's what the Constitution says. So when we're talking about emergency powers that are given by the Congress, that does not necessarily mean that it's martial law. So even if it might look like it's martial law, it's technically not martial law. So obviously this was a bill made in light of the coronavirus, which is seen as sort of the national emergency. But how did they make it such that it legitimized even needing emergency power and not martial law? Well, okay. Uh, the main difference between martial law and emergency powers is that emergency powers emanate from Congress. So it's delegated to the president. So the president cannot go beyond the powers that he's been delegated. But with martial law, what, what would need to happen was, is that there first needs to be an actual rebellion or invasion. And in this case, you can't, you can't see a rebellion, you can't see an invasion. Right, So at this point, it's impossible for the president to use um, this medical public health emergency as a basis for martial law. But in order to legitimize it, um, even in the explanatory note, it, it said that the main basis, in fact, for why there should be emergency powers is just like the spread of the virus and the fact that we have a public health emergency. That's fair. I, I think, though... If you could try, probably some people could claim that this is something that merits martial law, especially since people have been disobeying. I, I'd say people have been seeing that as a sort of rebellion, but there's no invasion. Unless you count like the invasion of the virus into your immune system. <laughs> yeah, I think I think but that is ridiculous. I think for invasion, we have to take a look at the existence of other countries, for example, like wars, for instance. And if there is a war, and that's what you mean by invasion, there first needs to be um, a, a pronouncement coming from Congress that there is in fact a war. But since there is no such pronouncement by Congress, then you can't consider this to be an invasion. And I also don't think that you can consider this to be a rebellion, even though people are disobeying laws, for example, or the government or whatever quarantine there is. That's not rebellion because technically, 
if you're looking at rebellion, you have to look at the revised penal code. And the revised penal code is very strict in saying that when you're talking about rebellion, the goal has to be to depose the government or to remove from sovereignty um, some territories within the Philippines, either in whole or in part. So it's obviously not a rebellion. It's also not an invasion. So I think we can rest a little bit assured that the president will not be able to exercise um, martial law. All right. So at least we're now pretty clear that it's not martial law, despite people's fears of it. But this bill, like you mentioned to me in person, is pretty problematic still. So let's kind of dissect that and talk about why, probably. Yeah. So the first thing I want to take a look at is the effectivity of the emergency powers. Like how long will the emergency powers last? Because what the bill says is that um, it is effective immediately upon publication in a newspaper of general circulation or the official gazette for three months unless extended by Congress, provided that the powers granted under this act may be withdrawn sooner by means of resolution by Congress or ended by presidential proclamation. So, just a little bit of legislative background here. The original bill said that it would be effective two months for two months which may be extended by the president himself. So the president, under the original bill, would have to first determine that the calamity still persists after the initial two months and he could extend it unilaterally. And what the Congress can do is to withdraw that power from from the president or he can still end it by presidential proclamation. So the problem with the original version was that the president had too much unilateral power over whether he retains his power. He had the ability to extend the effectivity of his powers, and we just have to trust that his assessment of whether or not there's a calamity is correct. And in the worst case, if he extends it, we cannot challenge the factual basis. So for example, in the original version, if that were the bill that was supposed to be signed by the president, what would have happened, what could have ha- what could happen is that the president, after the first two months, says, Oh, my calamity paren, I'm going to extend it. Even though, and then if people on the ground say, oh, there's no calamity anymore, people are chill, you know, let's challenge this exercise of emergency power, probably the Supreme Court will go like, nah, (laughs) no, you can't can't do that. Because there were cases before the Mindanao martial law cases where... The petitioner was challenging the imposition of martial law in Mindanao by saying there's no factual basis to support this. There isn't really a rebellion. There's no invasion here either. And then the court said, "Mm, probably there is. It's just that it's confidential information known only by the president. So if if the original wording of the bill was the, the one that's retained here, it's very difficult to challenge even if the facts don't reflect his pronouncements. And another problem is, if you look at the Constitution, and I said this earlier, the Constitution says that the emergency powers will stop in only one of three ways. The first one is the end of the limited period. The second is that it's withdrawn by Congress. And third, if it's not withdrawn earlier by Congress, then it would be automatic upon the adjournment of Congress. And this list in the Constitution seems to be exclusive. Like, you can't add to it. It's, it's exclusive, right? So, and you see in the case of the constitutional provision, the words like shall, and that means like you have to do it. Like, there's no other way for you to do it. Because other constitutional provisions, um, they use the word may. And if you use the word may, that means you can do it this way or you can also do it some other way, which is how the court like decided on the co-warranto case against Sereno, if you remember, where people were saying that, you know, co-warranto is not the proper way to impeach this officer through impeachment lang. And then the Supreme Court said, no, read, read the provision. It says may be impeached, so not exclusively impeached. But here, the use of the word shall means that you can't add to it. But in the old bill, as well as in this bill, the problem still exists that you allow the president the option to choose the length of the effectivity um, up to the three months. But I would still say that the old bill is more dangerous. Like, for example, 
um, because the president had the ability to unilaterally extend the period under the old bill, it frustrates the Constitution's mandate that the grant of emergency powers was for a limited time only. And the reason why, the reason why I think it's supposed to be exclusive is because the president shouldn't be allowed to make any decision here. Like the power to his emergency powers are delegated by the Congress, right? So all of the ways that he can exercise or not exercise that power also has to be delegated. It's given by the people through the Congress and he should literally have no choice but to exercise it for as long as the Congress determines that he should be. It, it's kind of just upsetting that in a in a normal world, this the language of the bill shouldn't be a problem because we should be trusting that the spirit of the law should be followed. But given our experiences, especially with the impeachment, for example, we can see how people are so willing to twist words just to get the outcome that they want. Do you really think, though, that with the old wording, they would have probably abused it in any way? Well, I'm not sure like if it was actually going to happen. But what I can say is that it is more likely that it could happen. So I think my attitude when I look at the law is I try to think of all the different ways that it could be abused. And I like I I don't think that I should trust anyone with any power unless I am sure that the, the law specifically limits any kind of abuse like that. Isn't that like a principle in reading law or something? Yeah, it's from it's from Justice Holmes actually. Um, he said in The Path of Law, if I'm not mistaken, that's the name of the article that he wrote. In The Path of Law, he calls this the bad man theory, where if you read or write laws, you always have to th- think like you are the bad man um, and you want to break the law or try to skirt the law or do some bad stuff. But in, in cases where you give more power to the government, the bad man or the bad person that you want to take the shoes of isn't like the criminals who are vi- the quote-unquote criminals who are violating quarantine but the people who are actually supposed to exercise the power which is the government itself how many revisions did so, this given that let's how take- many revisions did this law go through we keep talking about the old one and the new one but we're not really that clear yet Quite a few, actually. But what I'm looking at is the the original um, bill that was said to the Senate compared to Senate Bill 1418, which is the recent one that was adopted by both the Senate and the House this morning, really, really early. Like you, actually, I, I'm not even sure if you could consider that morning. Maybe that's nighttime because it's 3:30 yeah. a.m. But why did they rush it though? Well, pag emergency kasi, and it's very urgent. You can rush it. So, right, you have three readings. Usually, kasi if it's just any other normal law, you would take three days. Like, you distribute copies to them, give three days. But if it's urgent, certified urgent by the president, they can waive that. So, like, the Constitution says that if it is certified urgent, you can waive some things. But just to be clear, you still have to do the readings. You still have to do multiple readings. The only thing that you're waiving is the three-day period by which like, the Houses of Congress are supposed to read up on the bill some more. Don't immediate now. Like, let's, let's go deliberate on this now. Yeah, it feels like it, it's counterintuitive though. It feels kind of counterintuitive. Isn't the reason you need three readings? Or at least like our, in my discussion in Paul's side, the reason you need three readings is to really dissect the law and then properly understand it scrutinize it but if you rush it and the president's allowed to rush it it kind of defeats the purpose of having three readings chances are they're not even reading it that well yeah but then again even in the instance in which they were given three days it's not really an assurance that people read it either yeah and yeah I, I suppose like it's supposed to be corrected during the deliberations itself. But then we, we have heard that a lot of people were prevented from participating in those I know, in those deliberations earlier. And people were saying, oh, it's unfair. Yeah, wasn't there like supposed to be an interpolation that they just cancelled because they wanted to rush it? Yeah. So anyway, 
Since we talked about the bad man theory already, let's take a look at the authorized powers that we gave to the president. The first one, in paragraph 1, uh, this is section 4, paragraph 1, says that um, the president has the power to, quote-unquote, suppress the transmission of COVID-19 through education, detection, protection, and treatment. Okay, so the original, the original version of the bill didn't say through education, detection, protection, and treatment. Um, so it was like a general statement that you're supposed to suppress and minimize transmission and the spread of the disease. So it was super vague. So the problem with that is that it could mean something else entirely, like something that's not about education, not about detection, protection, or treatment, like a supercalifragilisticexpialidocious quarantine with extreme enhancement or something. But the problem with the amendment uh, the amended version is that it's still unnecessary like he already has the power as the president to do all these things like the power to edu- to facilitate education treatment because like sino ba yung nito? it's the DOH it's the DepEd if we're talking about education or something but those the secretaries of those departments are literally alter egos of the president so this is just a restatement of a power that he, al- he already has yeah, and even if he like edited it and it was edited already, education, detection, protection, treatment—they say they still sound super vague. What does that look like? Did it specify it in any way? No, they didn't specify it in any way, which is why it's kind of bad. But another power that was given to the president is to expedite the accreditation of testing kits. And prompt testing by the by public and designated private institutions and immediate treatment of patients. In the original, it only talked about testing, but in the new one, it also talked about accreditation of kits, which is good because in order to make testing a thing, you need to be able to have more kits, like cheaper kits, more effective kits, etc. But since we're talking about good things as well, I want to take a look at paragraph five, for example which says continue to enforce measures to protect people from hoarding and profiteering. Paragraph 6 says donations should not be delayed. Paragraph 7 says procurement of goods and services um, should be expedited as an exemption from the Government Procurement Reform Act because the Government Procurement Reform Act is notoriously slow. Like I have friends in government who say who have to work for with procurement and it is literally the worst thing ever, Dao Sabe. Paragraph 8 of Section 4 says that they can partner with Red Cross. Another paragraph says, create incentives for manufacturing and requiring business to accept contracts for provision of those goods, etc. So, a lot of the things that are mentioned in the bill are actually good. Majority of them, though, are already within the president's power to do. I mean, if we're talking about, for example, accreditation of kits, like who does that? The accreditation of kits usually is done by the FDA and the FDA is an administrative agency under the control of the executive branch which means that the president already had the power to do this and when you take a look at things like continue to enforce measures to protect people from hoarding and profiteering like you're not making any new law you're just enforcing the laws that are already existing so do you mean to tell me that the president could not enforce a simple law before this the law that already existed against hoarding and profiteering without the grant of emergency powers because like in the original right the president it says that the president can quote unquote adopt or make his own measures against hoarding but now it's changed to enforce since it's just about enforcing already existing law girl that's literally what a president is supposed to do that's his fucking job description and hoarding and profiteering has special definitions in the price act so there's already a law that you're supposed to enforce you're not supposed to give an extra power for this but in hoarding by individuals can be solved by LGUs like look at the examples of Pasig and Valenzuela yeah so this seems to be just a really memo part of the bill um, I'm not even sure how it's going to be different like what does having special powers do that make it so much easier to stop these bad things from happening that the presidential powers can't already achieve mm-hmm. I, I would say that at best it is just memo but at worst, because it is vague in this particular way, like 
we omitted the use of the word adopt. We just used enforced. But you could reasonably say that there might be a reasonable reading to, that says that he can make his own measures, right? So I think at worst, the, the vagueness that this creates um, makes the president able to make his own law. Let's hope it doesn't get to that. Yeah, and since I was just talking about Pasig and Valenzuela, um, the next paragraph, paragraph 3, says that the president should ensure that all LGUs are acting in line with the regulations of the national government and are implementing it exactly like local government units are not allowed to go beyond or below the prescriptions made by the the national government unless it is a matter undefined by the national government. So I think here we're talking about like Vico Soto or something. And, and it's kind of obvious that it is about mayors like Vico Soto. But I think a problem here is that LGUs go beyond the prescription of the national government or fall short specifically because the regulations are so unclear to begin with. So in this case, LGUs are trapped now to follow um, counterintuitive measures or they're trapped in a situation where they don't know the bounds of what is acceptable or not because the national government was so unclear. Yeah, so this is literally removing the check and balance of the LGUs and towards the national government. And personally, to me, it didn't make sense because not only was it very restrictive to LGUs who probably know their constituents best, but it's very different from the stance Duterte took before. He was very pro-federalism, very pro-LGU. He wanted people to do things in manners that he felt were, were most appropriate for their constituents. But suddenly, when he's in power, he's no longer for this advocacy. So I, I've ranted about this a lot, but I, I think besides the legal issues, it's also very against the, the purposes of having these divisions of power in the first place. Okay, so next let's talk about takeover which is the next paragraph of the powers that are given to the president. So just a legal background for this power. Um, Article 12, Section 17 of the Constitution says that at times of national emergency and when the public interest so requires, the state may, during the emergency and under reasonable terms, temporarily take over or direct the operation of any privately owned public utility or business affected with public interest and let's take a look at the legislative background here originally the senate bill says that the president is allowed to take over any public utility or business affected by public interest so cannot be based from the constitution including for some reason telecommunications which is way too vague because like any public utility can be taken over by the government even if they're not reasonably related to covid19 so they tried to fix that in Senate Bill 1418, making it more limited. So now the questions that we have to ask are, who can be taken over and for what? So the who here, um, under Senate Bill 1418, is any privately owned hospitals and medical health facilities, including passenger vessels and other establishments to house health workers. Um, so... The reason why they want to do that is to house the frontliners, um, to create aid and relief distribution centers, to transport frontliners, etc. Um, so my comment here is, I mean, okay, 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 it's fine. Um, and the reason why I think it's okay is because in practice, I think a lot of private hospitals, for example, are refusing to admit COVID patients. So to that extent, I think it's better than before. Although some people would argue that why are we trying to limit private establishments like they're not doing anything wrong they're they're working pretty fine i well i would say not really there was a really big issue released on twitter where saint luke's medical center didn't want to accept any covid patients despite bragging that they are like the top facility in the country etc so i think this original bill or the the original intention was to target those kinds of establishments yeah I, I get that but i would say that by and large they're not as bad as like the government makes it look like they are but i do accept that there are some but anyway i think 
Okay, I have a few issues with this. The first one is that I'm a bit apprehensive about hosp- the wording in the law that says hospitals, passenger vessels, other establishments. Because by using the words other establishments, it means that it's not an exclusive list. You can add more things to it. But we have, um, we have to construe other establishments in light of the other specific establishments that they're supposed to be similar to. So there's this rule in um, statutory construction, or basically reading the law. Statutory construction is a fancy schmancy legalese word, uh, a phrase for reading the law. So uh, one of the ways that we can read a law is using this legal maxim called eius dem generis. Basically what that says is that if there's a specific list like X, Y, Z, and after that specific list, there is a general word saying, and others, for example. Others has to be read in conjunction with X, Y, and Z. So you have to find what is common between that. So what is common between hospitals, passenger vessels, and medical health facilities? To me, um, it means the ability to carry people, the ability to transport, and I don't know, maybe the ability to take care of people but that's just to me other people might be able to say that what's common between them sorry um, that's just me other people might be able to say that actually what's common here is just the ability to hold a lot of people so siguro you can take over some other things that are not within that list and it will be perfectly fine depending on how you read this also um, public utilities or franchises could have their franchises amended by Congress to reflect this to begin with without giving the president these powers. Um, because the same article of the Constitution, um, Article 12, says that no franchise shall be granted except under the condition that be subject to amendment by Congress when the common good so requires. And also, if hospitals... Um, the government can actually enter into lease agreements or if they're uncooperative, even local government units can use eminent domain to take over the land without having to give powers to, these pres- to the president. So what is the added benefit of including this then in the bill? Uh, the added benefit here is that there are lots of um, procedural requirements that you can just go past. So, for example, if you enter into a lease agreement, for example, and like some local government units have actually done this, they still needed to make negotiations for creating the lease agreement. If it's about um, eminent domain, there there has to be expropriation proceedings. You need to draft an entirely new ordinance, for example, to take control of that land, possess it give just compensation, whatever. So there are lots of procedures that are bypassed as a result of taking over the business. And, well, to be fair, the Senate bill says that the owners or the managers still get to oper- to run the operations and they, they are entitled to damages. But the, the point is, the, the bill doesn't say how they're going to do it. It just says that the president has the power to do it. So it is the president who will decide what the procedure to be followed will mm, be. So it's really just efficiency. So a lot of procedures may be bypassed. Yeah, so it's just efficiency. Yeah, it's literally just efficiency. Yeah. Another thing that is actually pretty important is um, compensation of workers. Because paragraph 9 um, empowers the president to engage temporary human resources for um, health and so for human resources for health to supplement the workforce and they shall be given compensation and hazard pay because what happens is um, what's happening right now is like you already have a workforce but it's not enough so you're calling for volunteers but as it stands right now you're not required to pay the volunteers anything even if they're temporary human resources for health because there's no law that says you should give them money but under this paragraph um, they should be given appropriate compensation and hazard pay so i'm like dude like finally like we should stop this whole volunteer volunteer for no pay thing 
And this is one of the things cov- not covered under any present oh, law. Okay. So I think this might be good. Caso, my, my problem is why does it have to be a president's emergency power to be able to do this? Um, so non-volunteers had hazard pay already. Um, now temporary human resources for health as well as the current health workforce now have compensation and allowance. So the new computation is you have hazard pay which is 25% and an additional special risk allowance because according to Grace Poe, COVID-19 is a special kind of hazard. So you need to have a special kind of hazard pay and they call this a special risk allowance. But we don't know yet how that allowance will be computed. Again though, I don't understand why the emergency power is needed. I guess it's just another efficiency issue. Yeah, but I, I think that like if they had the time to go through the this many readings to read um, giving uh, to read a bill that will give the president these powers they could have easily they they could have easily took the same amount of time to read a bill that will give the same benefits to i know to workers yeah so anyway since we're talking about money let's now go on to budget and this is something that i I'm, i'm dreading i've been dreading this entire recording session from talking about because it's the budget and no one wants to talk about the budget but okay just a summary um under the senate bill 1418 paragraph 17 allows the president to discontinue or direct the discontinuance of the programs of the executive department and to use the money that was saved to augment support operations Paragraph 18, on the other hand, says that the unutilized balance or savings in special purpose funds will be used to augment those same operations. And the last one, paragraph 19, this is the most controversial, allows the president to realign um, funds that were allocated from the savings of other items in the executive department into other things. So augmentation parentia. There are a few problems here. The first one is that you could argue that it's unnecessary to have paragraphs 17 and 18 the first two like discontinuing programs unutilized balance it's unnecessary to make it a part of emergency powers because the canceling of projects he can already do that because authorized by congress and unused funds are allowed to be appropriated to his office um, and that's already in the Constitution. The original version of the third one about realigning and reappropriating was unconstitutional because it allowed the president to reallocate funding from anywhere, even for projects beyond his office. So um, the Constitution, the relevant portion of the Constitution, says that this is Section um, 25 of Article 6, um, says that no law shall be passed authorizing any transfer of appropriations However, the president may, by law, be authorized to augment any item in the general appropriations law for his respective office from savings and other items of his respective appropriations. So it's, it's a very complicated thing to talk about, but um, it's easier if you think about it in terms of what is allowed, what is not allowed. So what is allowed is that the president can augment the funding for his projects using savings from his other projects. So if the GAA, the General Appropriations um, Law, um, says that the president's project A has an allocation of 10 million and his project B is 20 million um, and the president only used 10 million for project B, the unused money that is allocated to project B can be used to augment the funding for project A. What is not allowed is transferring money that wasn't even allocated to the president at all. So, no law shall be passed authorizing the transfer of appropriations. That necessary. That just means that if there is budget that is not allocated to your office as the president, you can't get money from other places in the government that wasn't allocated to you. So the reason for this is because okay. So you might ask, but why is it that? Spreading, reallocate if it's savings, but it's bawal if it's from others. The reason for this is to find a balance between what is given to the president and also flexibility. So Congress cannot anticipate all the issues and needs that may come into play once the budget reaches its execution stage. It is not practicable for the Congress to adjust 
um, and pass a new appropriation bill after each and every development, which is why the president should be able to reallocate funds as needs arise. So there was talk a few years ago um, about PDAF where there was some discretionary funds and it was challenged and the court said that having discretionary power over the budget is not per se a bad thing as long as it was already allocated to your office in general and the congress allows you to use some funding um, and unused funds or savings and reallocate them into your other other projects so historically this was this practice was around since 1909 but there are obviously limits that are imposed by the constitution like you can't touch what isn't yours the president can't touch money that was never allocated to his office he cannot use all the country's money only the money that his office was entitled to from the very beginning yeah so again i feel like this part of the bill seems unnecessary it's just kind of reiterating what's already allowed my my speculation was they wanted the original version, which was to allow the president to just get funds from others and reallocate anywhere. And then they realized they couldn't do that, so they took it out. But they just didn't take out this entire section altogether. But why not, though? Yeah, so what I would say is, you're definitely correct that it doesn't need to be labeled as an emergency power if it's something that could have been allowed. But remember that the Constitution says that the president can only augment um, items from unused money um, from other items of his appropriation if there's a law that is authorizing him to do that. Mm. So I suppose that he has a lot of underused um, he has a lot of unused funds from his other projects and he wants to use that under un- unused funds put them into his anti-COVID operations. But he can't do that unless there is um, an authorization coming from Congress. So I agree that this part of the bill should happen. It's just that I don't agree that it should be um, considered an emergency power. Is there like a big harm if it is though? So I'm guessing that this emergency power, or they just put it in this bill, sort of like to hit two stones, uh, two stones, (laughs) hit two birds with one stone? Because it's easier to just include this compared to doing a separate bill to achieve the same purpose. Yeah, I, I guess so. But for me, because um, the problem here is that there are so many things that you don't really need emergency powers for. So a lot of it looks reasonable, but there are some parts that might look un- that might look unreasonable if that was the only focus of the bill. So because you lump it together with a lot of reasonable provisions, you go like, okay, yeah, let's pass it. But a lot of the things that are really vague, um, like they slip under our radars. And that's, for me, the danger here. Which leads us to the the next part, the, the others, that's what I call it. Because the last um, power that is given to the president um, is the power to carry out such other measures as may be reasonable and necessary to enable the president to carry out the declared national policy subject to the Bill of Rights and other constitutional guarantees. So my first reaction when I read this was, what does that mean? <laughs> what, is, what does it mean to have uh, such other measures that may be reasonable and necessary to enable the president to carry out the declared national policy? It's really vague, but um, thankfully it says to carry out the declared national policy. Um, So, it would be helpful to note that even in this bill, as with most other bills, there is a section called the Declaration of Policy. And this this section um, usually provides the guiding principles behind the law. So, there's a section here, um, I found out saying it was section 3, that gives the Declaration of Policy. And the Declaration of Policy gives an enumeration of the goals that we're trying to achieve. So the first one is to minimize the transmission of COVID-19. The second one is to mobilize assistance. Um, the third one is to provide healthcare, I think. Um, another one is to prevent the overburdening of the healthcare system. The other one is to recover and rehabilitate people and give them welfare. 
and let's also ensure the funds to do those things but the last goal um, in the declaration of national of policy is to protect the collective interests at this most challenging time or something like that so that last one is really really vague even the declaration of policy is vague because um, the first six they're reasonable and related to COVID-19 but the seventh could mean anything even if it's not related to COVID-19 so in relation to the power that we gave to the president such other measures as may be reasonable and necessary to enable the president to carry out the declared national policy could mean anything even if it's not necessarily related to the prevention of the spread of the disease like what for example you could like you could argue that there must be a reason why at this point in time right there seems to be an influx of a lot of news about the NPA again, right? About domestic terrorism. Yeah. Um, so those other quote-unquote national security concerns that are not necessarily related to COVID, measures that the, that the president can take in order to stem out dissent, for example, those could reasonably be part of the such other measures that are reasonable and necessary to enable the president to protect our collective interests. And yung sinasabi na subject to the Bill of Rights and other constitutional guarantees, a lot of our constitutional guarantees can be limited by law. So for example, our freedom to information, um, you, there needs to be a law that allows you to get that information. Um, if there is, for example, freedom of speech, it can be limited by law by saying that there is a, com- a, a clear and present danger that will arise from you making that speech, which is why there are lots of libel laws for instance uh, defamation laws and um, incitement to sedition or rebellion so free speech can be limited if there is a law and the law is reasonable so there are lots of things that the president can now be able to do specifically because this catch-all provision is so vague it refers to a declared national policy that is in the bill which is in turn also very vague and not necessarily always related to COVID-19. So we move on to penalties. It says that violations of the provisions of this act shall be punishable with imprisonment of two months or a fine ranging from 10,000 pesos to 1 million pesos. And I think this is very interesting because in the old bill, it says um, that we were imposing penalties on any violation of the rules issued pursuant hereto. But here, it's in the new one, it's violation of this act. So, how do you violate this act, right? How do you violate Senate Bill 1418? There, there is nothing here that says XYZ is prohibited. And, you know, because this entire bill only says, here are the powers that we give to the president. So literally, the penalties like stop mattering because the only way that penalties will be imposed if it is a violation of the rules that are issued. But since in this new version, the only way that you get the two-month penalty is if you violate powers that are given to the president, which makes no sense, right? Maybe it, maybe it means... If you refuse to acknowledge or grant the power to the president, I don't know. Well, it, it, it is the Congress that gave him that power. So the only way that this makes sense for me is if we're going to be punishing the president for not following the guidelines that are put in the bill. The problem with that is, okay, the problem with the penalties provision is that it violates provisions of Senate Bill 1418. But the provisions of Senate Bill 1418 doesn't affect anybody except the president. So only the president could reasonably violate the bill. But the president cannot be sued while he's in office. I, I don't know then. It's just Mema. So this is, this is Mema now. <laughs> this is Mema. But if you look at it the other way, I think this is like the easier way. It's, I think it's easier for me to want a provision that doesn't make any sense because it, it doesn't change anything as opposed to it changes something but it's pretty bad because my my original speculation um, with the old penalty uh, with the old provision 
any violation of the rules issued issued pursuant thereto, it means that if the president says, okay, there is now a quarantine, and people violate that quarantine, those people can be punished with an imprisonment of two months or a fine of ten thousand to one million, because they violated rules that are issued pursuant to the powers that were granted by the president to the president by this bill. So, kasi, I, I just want to stress that if you violate the quarantine and there's no ordinance that says violating quarantine um, comes with a penalty, there is no law that prohibits breaking quarantine. There is no law. People will say that, oh, look at um, RA 11332, um, which prohibits people from um, not cooperating. But those laws, those provisions in RA 11332 don't apply unless you are a frontliner or medical um, health worker or you are a person who was actually diagnosed with COVID-19. So even under the present law, there is nothing that says that you're not allowed to refuse to cooperate with the current with the quarantine but under the old version of senate of this bill you could possibly be um imprisoned for that na but under this new version that doesn't apply anymore okay so last thing i want to talk about is construction um because if i'm mistaken section 7 says that Um, Nothing in this bill shall be construed as an impairment, restriction, or modification in the Constitution. In in case exercise of the powers herein granted conflicts with other statutes, orders, rules, or regulations, this act shall prevail. So the old version was unclear because it said that if the exercise of the powers granted in the bill conflict with other laws than the actual prevail so there was some confusion and some thought that this meant that the constitution was superseded by the bill um, and i think that's fair because i suppose people were thinking that the constitution is also a law um, so if the exercise of the powers granted by the bill conflict with the constitution then the powers given to the president like prevail but that's technically speaking not the correct way to go about it because we do not really treat the constitution as a law um technically speaking no law goes beyond the constitution it's not just a mere law it is a law but it is not do you see the do you see the problem here like it is a law but it's not the kind of law that is referred to yeah i mean this is like the first thing we study in paul so the constitution isn't just seen as a law in our perspective or at least in the the realm of Palsai. we see it as a structure we see it as a um, an institution in itself so it's the most important institution because it gives rise to other institutions right so it, even if it is the law it is sort of the genesis of all laws so we cannot yes have anything exactly. that overtakes it mm. yeah exactly so um, no law, and this is useful for other um, future laws, Siguro, when you read it. There is, it's impossible for any law to be able to justify non compliance with the Constitution because it creates a contradiction. The power of the law that you're reading emanates from the Constitution because it's the Constitution that empowered the legislature to make laws. So if the legislature is trying to contradict the constitution, it is also contradicting its own source of power. Yeah. You can't defeat God if you were created by God. <laughs> sort of. Yeah, you can't do that. Because if, if you contradict God and God is the reason for your existence, then existence ceases to exist. Yeah, that's a, that's a, and this yeah. is a plot of a movie. <laughs> this is some philosophical thing already. Yeah, it's dogma, mm. right? So anyway... I, I think that's it. This is a pretty lengthy one. It was it was very interesting recording about an event that literally happened only a few hours ago, less than twelve hours oh, yeah? ago. 
you had to do a lot of editing. Uh, editing of your script, I mean. Yeah, yeah. What's the takeaway, though? So I think we're just inciting fear in people. We're not talking about this to make you scared. Just aware. So obviously, we are in unprecedented times. We don't know what's taking place. We don't know how things are going to happen moving forward. Like, literally, no president has had to deal with a pandemic of this scale. At least, like, when you talk about wars, we kind of know already what happened. We know what patterns to follow, what are good tactics to deal with it. And I think at this point, every country is just trying to deal with COVID-19 in their own way. And I don't know why, but the Philippines chose to grant emergency powers as a way of dealing with it. And I don't think any other country has granted emergency powers to their president. But it's just good to stay aware, especially since there are a lot of violations that are taking place on the ground. It's basically turning into a little bit of the purge with policemen doing whatever, like putting people in cages and etc. And we are basically just pointing out that what the government is doing is problematic it can continue to be problematic and even if we cannot change things the least we can do is be vigilant so that the next time things escalate we can find out why and that this is the bill that probably will allow more problems to happen in the yeah, future because, al- because also if you notice um, I-, I did a lot of um, discussion about why this did it didn't need to be an emergency power Um, because this was already something that can be done with existing mechanisms. So I think taking that into consideration, there isn't so much that this bill changes. I mean, there is a lot that will be changed, but we need to temper our fears with information. So what really is there to be afraid of? And that was the goal That was our goal going into this episode. Now, what are the things that we need to know? Um, because, like, people fear what we don't know, right? So, if we know things, more things, it gives us more ammunition, um, metaphorical ammunition. I must clarify to help us combat the fears that we currently have. I like how you had to specify like it's metaphorical ammunition. You know, <laughs> like we might be targeted by the PNP for this. <laughs> So in summary, it's not martial law. Like best case, it's just a memo bill with some weird repetitive uh, provisions that already exist in other laws. Or worst case, it is vague enough that it can be abused. We're not saying it will be abused, but it can be abused. So it would be good to keep in mind what these loopholes were in case anything happens in the future. So that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Um, we'll see you in the next one. Bye.